Welcome back to another episode of the Black Menaces Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Bird, and I'm here with a new co-host for this week. Go ahead and introduce yourself. It's Kylie. I'm glad to be Wonderful. here and for Rachel tonight. So I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. Kylie's filling in for Rachel. Rachel is uh, on her way back from a trip and her flight got canceled. Uh, but Kylie is awesome enough to, to fill in. And she's one of the Black Menaces that you probably don't get to hear from as often as you would like. So we're excited to have her on the podcast this week. And uh, we want to introduce our guest, who is someone incredibly special that we're looking forward to interviewing. We've had this on the on the books for, for a few weeks now. Um, but Chef Tasha Sawyer has cooked on a sailboat in the Great Bear Rainforest, a fishing lodge in Haidaguay, and in the mountains of Yoho National Park. She was featured as the Star Trek chef on StarTrek.com in 2020 and has been a repeat guest on CBC Radio's BC Today. Chef Tasha Sawyer has been cooking ever since she can remember and professionally for the last 15 years. She is passionate about local ingredients and has been an avid forager since she was a child. She sees food as fundamental to building and sustaining community and connection. Chef Tasha is currently a chef educator teaching youth literacy and culinary skills. Chef Tasha Sawyer, please introduce yourself to our wonderful audience. Oh, I think you did a pretty good job there. I don't think you've missed anything. <laughs> wonderful. Well, yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're really excited to have you. Um, and, you know, we're looking forward to hearing your story and, and hearing your origin. Before we do that, though, we do have our menace moment. And we're actually going to do it a little bit different today. Uh, so what I'm going to do real quick is I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. And we're just going to do a video. We're going to let a video do the talking. And uh, if you have been following social media, you will know exactly why I chose this video. So give me just one moment. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the ancestor, Nathaniel Alexander. Nathaniel Alexander invented the folding chair in 1911. On March 10th, 1911, he submitted a patent for the folding chair. And that patent was approved on July 4th. So I will now be celebrating July 4th in honor of Nathaniel Alexander. Now, there were patents for the folding chair prior to his. However, what made his interesting is that he added a desk drop on the back of it. And it was ideal for churches and schools. It was a shelf where the person behind you could put a book or something onto the chair, but specifically in his patent information, he put in there that the folded chair could be used for multiple purposes. The ancestors have left us everything we need. <laughs> and there it is. So to be clear, I was looking at the comments and it looks like the person in the picture is actually Lewis Latimer, who was the one who actually invented the, I believe it was the filament for the light bulb. So we give credit for, to Thomas Edison for that, but it was actually Lewis Latimer who was responsible for uh, the success of the light bulb. Um, so yeah, that's a picture of Lewis Latimer in the background. 
But Nathaniel Alexander, the name is correct. He's the one that invented the folding chair. So if you've been following social media, you know exactly why I chose that. There was a, a, a lovely woman who had her spine compressed by a folding chair uh, while trying to jump a security guard. And um, that's been all over the Internet. So I thought this was a, an entertaining video and also a great little minutes moment from uh, Kimberly Latrice Jones. So thank you to her for for sharing that content. And with that, uh, Chef Tasha, we'd love to go ahead and just get into your story a little bit. Can you please tell us? I know you said you've been cooking ever since you can remember. But can you just tell us a little bit about how you got started cooking, who taught you how to cook or if it was just the ancestors whispering in your ear? Just just kind of let us know how that was. Uh, sorry, cut out for a minute there. I missed your entire question. <laughs> oh, no problem. No problem. Uh, yeah. So I was just wondering, you know, how did you get started with cooking? Who was it that taught you? Was it just the ancestors whispering in your ear? Or did you have a major influence? Let us know how you started cooking. I had several major influences, actually. I uh, was lucky enough to be blessed with a very large family and uh, six aunts altogether, uh, five of whom were really good cooks. Uh, and then my mother as well. So I started, like a lot of young people do at home, with uh, at your mother's knee or sitting on a chair or something like that, uh, learning to peel carrots or something like that. But uh, the first thing I actually made was probably grilled cheese sandwiches. I feel like I went through okay. a bit of a phase there where uh, it's all I would eat. So my mom showed me how to make them. So we started off with really simple. And... Um, I have four aunts that were all cooks and my mother also a really good cook. And um, turns out, speaking of my ancestors who might have influenced me, my grandmother was the first cook and the first cook at the first hotel on a very small island in the Bahamas where she was born. So I feel sometimes that uh, she's a bit of a guiding light to me as well. That's incredible. I love that. Kylie, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just thinking like how awesome it would the influence grandparents, just that family can have on us and mm -hmm. our ancestry. That's the only thought I have while listening. Absolutely. I think, yeah, most, you know, I, I'm an avid watcher of like those chef shows on Netflix and things like that. And one thing I've noticed is that a lot of times the inspiration is family. So it's, it's cool to hear that story. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about like what inspired you to want to be a chef? You know, because there are a lot of people that just cook or that, you know, will cook for family, things like that. But what was it that inspired you to actually pursue uh, culinary arts? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I got started as a professional quite late, uh, generally speaking. A lot of people have the origin story that they found a job as a dishwasher when they were 16 and they uh worked their way up and became a chef, but it wasn't like that for me. And from there to here was not a straight line at all. Uh, I didn't suddenly become a chef overnight. I started really quite late, actually. Um, I did a few other things before that. So I, I went to university. I have a degree in history. And when I was done, I, hmm, I had wanted to be a teacher, actually, because my mom was a teacher. But by the time I got to the end of my four years in my K-5, years in university, I, the last thing I wanted to do was go back and do a bachelor of education to become a teacher. I was done with school. I also had student loans that I wanted to pay off. So I looked for something that would do that for me with the least amount of effort or the least amount of stress. So I ended up working actually at a call center for a cable company. 
So I spent all my days talking to super angry people whose cable didn't work. And uh, it paid the bills. It paid off my student loan. And once that was done, I said, hasta la vista to those guys. And got a much calmer job working at a, a bookstore, actually. Hmm. Um, and that was kind of a, that was a good break, actually. I had I had so I had a little bit of trauma. I'm not going to lie from the years working in that call center and people just being angry <laughs> all the time. Hmm. The bookstore was a really good change for me after the call center. The call center was pretty stressful, um, so it's just a nice, quiet. A nice, quiet, independent bookstore where mostly people came in who were just looking for books. Uh, a lot of teachers. We had a lot of stuff that um, was part of the curriculum, so we sold a lot of books that way too. And that was that was my life for a little while after that. Um, and after that, I kind of switched gears and started working at a coffee shop. I eventually became a manager there, and uh, that was my life for about eight years. And uh, it wasn't until... I, I, sorry, I started all of this uh, when I was living in Toronto, because I was born and raised in Toronto. I, uh, about half, about two years or so, sorry, about six years or so into being a manager, I actually moved to Calgary, Alberta. Uh, same job, but doing, uh, you know, just wanted some new horizons. And uh, because it was such a different market, I guess, the job I'd been doing in Toronto changed drastically. And it didn't seem like a good fit for me anymore. Um, I had also recently come out of a relationship and I decided what better time to reinvent yourself than at the end of a relationship. And I'm in a city where I don't really know that many people. Hmm. So I ended up, I was like, you know, I remember I used to like cooking <laughs> and I had done it for so many years, sort of part time and on the side. Uh, it's one of the ways I like I had these side hustles that we that I would uh, I would make cakes and I would make hors d'oeuvres and I would do dinner parties at people's houses and I did that all the way through university. Um, I also did it a little bit after university. I had also taken some courses at uh, George Brown College in Toronto, which is one of the culinary schools. So I had all of this background, but I'd never done it professionally really in a kitchen up until then. Hmm. So. I quit my job as a manager. Uh, I decided to take the summer off. I timed it nicely so that I uh, I quit it. Uh, that's sort of the end of June, and you know the summer in Calgary was really the best time, and it was a, a really good time to just you know do some road trips, go camping, and all that stuff. And I got I was like ever so slightly worried that I might not have enough money to do the whole summer, so I ended up working at uh, the Calgary Stampede, which you may have heard of, and uh, in their catering department, and that was actually the catalyst that was when I got into that kitchen, I realized, Oh my God, this, this is the thing. This is the thing I like. This is what I like to do. I just want to make food. People eat it. Everyone's happy. There's a creative process, but you know, there's also the scientific sort of the scientific aspect to it that makes things work. And mm -hmm. it was when I had that very short, um, part-time job, the 10 days of the stampede, basically that, it came to me that this is what I wanted to do. So I went out and I got the first cook job I could find, which was at a bar, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I did, did a lot of deep frying there. Yeah, I'm sure. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so that's just, that's really like what kickstarted your career as a chef. And how long ago was that? That was 15 years ago. Yeah. Okay. 
Amazing. So after working at that bar, um, you know, what did you do kind of after that? Like, where did you go? Um, what changes did you make? Adjustments did you make? Like, was there anything that you did at that bar that like revolutionized the bar scene in, in, in Alberta or <laughs> like, what did you do to kind of progress over those 15 years? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> I did nothing to, <laughs> I did I, nothing revolutionary at the bar. It was uh, French fries, chicken wings and, and, you know, onion rings. Mm. Uh, like I said, a lot of deep frying, but I did. It also was like, I don't want to keep cooking at a bar. I don't want to, only have my entire resume be I cooked at this bar and you know deep fried everything. Mm -hmm. um, I also didn't I wasn't jiving with Calgary. I'd been there for a couple of years already, and uh, I was ready to make another change. And a lot of people in Calgary will tell you that the best part of living in Calgary is that it's so close to the mountains because it's about an hour and a half away from the Rocky Mountains, from Banff uh, mm -hmm. and Canmore, those small towns that are in the mountains. And I figured, well, if the best part of living in Calgary is the mountains, I should just go to the mountains hmm. instead of looking at them from an hour and a half away. And it just so worked out that I had an acquaintance that had a room, a room available at her condo. And so I just picked up everything and moved to Canmore. <laughs> wow. It like, seems like you are, you're very good at making adjustments on the fly, for yeah. sure. <laughs> And it was a great idea. It was probably the best. It was the best move ever. I went from Calgary, which is huge and everything. It's very friendly. It's definitely a friendly place, but it was difficult to make any kind of community there. I found, uh, and moving to Canmore, which was the small town of about 13,500 people with almost zero black uh, representation. I had, within months, had a community of friends around me, um, and I felt a real connection to the place. And so for me, it was definitely, you know, I, I felt more connected there in, let's say, six months than I did in the entire two years I lived in Calgary. Um, I have a question. Just kind of listening to your story, a lot of our listeners, just because of our how we started at BYU are in that college age. So how did you transition from getting a degree in history to, okay, I just need to pay off my student loans and then pursuing a completely different career that had really not much to do with your degree? Ah, yeah. Uh, well, one good thing about cooking is that you just need to be good at it. You don't actually need any training. Now, having said that, I had been cooking since I was about seven years old and I had done all sorts of casual cooking, but most restaurants, honestly, if you show up there and you're really enthusiastic and you're somewhat young, it's a pretty good chance you're going to get hired. Hmm. You can't show up at a Michelin starred restaurant and do this, but your okay. usual sort of like family restaurant, a hundred percent, just show up at the back door with a big smile on your face, a resume and a willingness to wash dishes. Pretty much get a job there. Oh, hmm. yeah. That's <laughs> it's good not that hard. <laughs> I didn't know it's that. Hard. I thought it was. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was just gonna say it's. Uh, yeah, it's it's not that hard. Hey, I love to hear that. Maybe maybe I'll pursue a career as a chef. Probably not. I don't. The the, the best the best thing I cook is is microwave popcorn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I did want to ask. Um, 
sorry, let me pull up my questions here. So over the 15 years that you've been cooking professionally, um, you know, what what's kind of been your signature? I know you mentioned that you're an avid yeah. forager and that you're passionate about local uh, products. So kind of tell us how you got into that, how you got into just like going out and collecting your own ingredients. Um, I want to hear more about that. Oh, sorry, I'm losing you again. I'm sorry, I was losing you again there. No problem. You need me to repeat the question? Yes, please. Okay, for sure. Yep. So I was just asking, uh, you know, over the over the 15 years, I'm sure you've probably developed a kind of style or like your signature way that you do things. You had mentioned that you're very passionate about local ingredients and that you're an avid forager. Could you could just kind of tell us more about um, like how you got into that and what, you know, what success you've had with just like learning how to forage, all of that? Yeah, I think it does go back to my childhood. My family is from the Bahamas and part of their life there is fishing, foraging and foraging just can be something as simple as let's go into this. Uh, let's go into the bush here. There's mangoes in season. Let's pick some of them. Uh, mm -hmm. Nothing more complicated than that. Um, and since I was little, this is something that I've seen people do. And it's just been a sort of a normal part of my life. Um, I was born in Toronto, but when I was five years old, we went down to the Bahamas to live. Uh, for five years. And that was like up close and personal with a more simple way of life um, than, in, than in a city. So my, my mom would take us fishing. We would go picking all of these wild berries or fruits, um, bush medicine, as they call it, which is various herbs and stuff that you brew into tea for whatever ails you. And it was never strange to me, really. It was... <clears throat> Sorry, it was never strange to me that you would pick a plant, make tea out of it, and you would give this to your kid when they were sick. You know, I drank a lot of very bitter tea <laughs> uh, as a kid, and uh, you know, we you know had medicine too. But sometimes it would just be a cup of this thing called sericea. It grows in the Caribbean. Uh, Jamaicans would be very familiar with this as well. It tastes terrible, but it's supposed mm. to be good for anything respiratory, <laughs> cold, flu, whatever. Uh, so when we came back to Canada, I was uh, 10 and a half. And of course, we're in the city now. So it's a completely different story. But I did learn slowly that there were things everywhere that you could eat that people didn't necessarily know about. One of those things was just crap growing the boulevards. Um, you know, the, you know, you'll eat too many of them and you'll get sick. And this is not true. So something as simple as crab apples, dandelions, uh, cattail roots i would just get books from the library and i would walk uh i'd walk around and see if i could find any of these things um, yeah. i also at one point lived near a ravine uh, near the don river in toronto and at that point i found a lot of a lot of the wild edibles that were in some of the books i bought from the library i have i've lived in ontario i've lived in uh, alberta and i've lived in british columbia and in all of those places, I've tried to familiarize myself with things that, that grow there. Obviously, something like dandelions, for example, you can find coast to coast. But in Alberta, for example, uh, in the mountains, you're more likely to find something like juniper berries. And in BC, there's a whole other world of foraging because the ocean is right there. With all of the plant life that's there, various edible seaweeds. 
and uh, plants that grow on the rocks, sorry, plants, <laughs> small animals and things that grow on the rocks that obviously you're not going to find in other places. But no matter where I've gone, even if I've gone on vacation somewhere, I just like to look around and see what's there. And I have to say, when I came to BC and started cooking here, I was lucky enough to be at a restaurant that, one of the restaurants actually that pioneered a deep dive into seasonality and uh, farm to table. And part of our ingredients actually came that were, were wild foraged as well. So any mushrooms that were in our menu, we did not get them from supplier. We got them from a forager, just the person who would go into the woods would find these various mushrooms and uh, bring them to the restaurant for us. We yeah. had uh, flowers, uh, roots, um, uh, seaweed, <laughs> of course, mm -hmm. um, all sorts of things that uh, made it onto the menu there. And that was the first time I'd actually seen it done outside of a home setting. You know, like, so it's like, okay, we have... We have on our menu here some Japanese knotweed, which tastes a bit like rhubarb, um, which is wild okay. foraged. And we cooked it, and we have garnished it with some reindeer moss, which has also been wild foraged from somewhere. Yeah. And these things go together amazingly. It's not something I'd ever really seen before. And even though I'd eaten all sorts of things out of the woods um, <laughs> before, I'd never really made complete dishes with them before. And so that was really eye-opening actually when I came to BC because all of the stuff I had learned my whole life was finally being put uh, was being put together in a really cohesive way and in a way that was actually approachable for guests and um, yeah yeah I love that that is really cool just kind of connecting back to the land in a way I guess and you know manifesting our ancestors and taking in that richness um so another question that I have for you, you kind of mentioned it, um, just living in Canada, the black community is really small. So how is it being a black woman there and just kind of going through a developmental stage of your life while being such a minority? It's really interesting. I, I was born in Toronto and a lot of black people migrated there in starting in the 60s. It was a whole wave that started in the 60s. And that included uh, my mother and uh, my aunt, or her sister, and some other various relatives. So at that time, I remember my mother still telling me stories that in the 60s, she'd be walking down the street. And if she saw another black person from a distance, she would, you know, raise her hand or nod or whatever at them. Because there were so few black people at the time that everyone felt yeah. you had to acknowledge a black person on the street in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And we, we still do that. At least I still do that. I was, that's how I was raised. So I get that for sure. But by the time I came along, it wasn't really like that. So I would not acknowledge black people in Toronto because there were so many black people in Toronto. And it mm. wasn't until I moved to Alberta, actually, that I'm like, ah, so this is what my mother was feeling, you know, all mm. of those years ago. Um, because in Calgary, for sure, I would, you know, do the black nod or smile or, you know, as my mom would say, would hail them. Uh, across the street or, you know, coming up, uh, coming towards you on the sidewalk. And it's a bit like that in Vancouver as well. There is a black community in every single province, but uh, it seems like the further west you go, the, the smaller it is. And uh, when you're in sort of in the middle of the country in Ontario and Quebec, it's a very sizable black community from all over the place. So Caribbean, West Indies, Africa, anywhere there's black people, uh, hmm. they're, they're there in Toronto. And growing up, it wasn't 
a huge deal because it was such a multicultural uh, neighborhood and area of Toronto that I lived in. You know, fully half the students at my school were probably not from Canada at the time, or they had they were first generation Canadians and had parents from other countries. You know, we had people from I don't know, like Mexico, Armenia. You know, I had a little Armenian friend there. Jamaica, tons of people from Jamaica, um, India. One of my best friends had just moved from Kuwait, for example, when I met her. Mm. And it was a real mixed bag. And one of the biggest shocks of my life, actually, as an adult moving from Toronto to Calgary, was like, where is everybody? <laughs> you know, it was, it was just extra white. <laughs> and I honestly did not see... I, I didn't see black people on a daily basis, you know, I it took me a while to find them. And when I found them, they were mostly from West Africa, like Nigeria, Ghana, etc. And it was a completely different kind of community. I'd been used to sort of a very like a West Indian and Caribbean sort of black community that I'd mostly been um, a part of. And it's just different situation, different different cultures, right? That I didn't really know anything about. Um, and so things were, things were a little bit weird in Calgary, I'm not gonna lie. Wow. It's probably, hmm. I tell this story because it's the, it's the first time for sure that I got a job because someone didn't think I was who I said I was. Mm. So uh -huh. yeah, I, this is when I was still managing the coffee shop. And I had somehow gotten in touch with, I wanted to make a move, as I had said before. Um, and I found a sort of a job recruiter that was sifting through jobs for me. I didn't have to pay them, but whoever had hired them to look for people like me was doing the paying. And she had narrowed something down to be sort of like a regional manager for a franchise, a franchise company. Don't need to name it. And before I even got anywhere near an interview with the company. She did all the background checks. She interviewed me. <laughs> she, you know, is basically I had two interviews, one with her, one with her supervisor type person or whatever. And they had already checked all of my uh, references, uh, my credentials, everything before I got anywhere near advertising at the company. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got to here, they're like, okay, they'd like to talk to you. I had a phone interview that went really well. They're like, okay, we'd like you to come into the office on Tuesday, whatever, and uh, to meet uh, some of the higher-ups. And at that point, the recruiter was super happy because she figured it was in the bag. Um, I was super happy because I also figured it was in the bag. Yeah. I get to the interview, and the first few minutes weren't okay, and then everyone got really hostile and started asking me all sorts of really strange questions about where I'd gone to school and about specific professors that I might've had. And at that point I'd been out of university for 10 years. I, I didn't remember anybody. <laughs> right, right. I, I remembered my favorite professors, but I wasn't gonna remember some random social studies or social science professor I had in second year, you know, because I took it because I had to, you know? I, I didn't remember any of that. And I, I began to realize that even though they were impressed by my resume and they had been impressed during the interviews and I was completely qualified for this job, 
they didn't believe I belonged to that resume. You still there? Yeah, I'm still there. Okay, I'm just trying to say it a better way, but yeah, they basically figured I was some sort of imposter. And while mm. the resume was good, I couldn't possibly be the person whose resume this was. Wow. And that was kind of wild. No, that's <laughs> that's very wild. Yeah. So you ended up not getting that job because Did not get the job. Didn't even bother getting you... a phone call from them. Oh, uh, I got a call from the recruiter, but um. Yeah, that's, yeah. and I, I, I should have realized too, or maybe I shouldn't have, but I realized it wasn't going to go well as soon as I walked in the door and I saw faces drop. Oh, man. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, this is going to be an uphill battle. And like I said before, everything had already been checked out. There was no reason to not hire me. I wasn't there in that in-person interview long enough for them to find out something, whatever, because it is more of an interrogation, I should say. It wasn't really an interview. Yeah, that's that's something else. I man. It, you know, it's it's sad to hear that things like that continue to happen, but also it's not something that's super surprising either. You know, unfortunately, those types of things like no matter where you are in the world, that anti-blackness is still going to persist in some ways. Um, you know, have you experienced things like that, uh, um, you know, among other opportunities or other, you know, jobs? Like, have you ever experienced discrimination from coworkers or maybe being treated differently in a position? Um, anything like that that you want to share? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because uh, being a cook in a kitchen is a very, it's a very male-dominated industry to start with. Yeah. And there have been... The majority of the jobs I've had to date, I have been the only woman in the kitchen. And up until I got to Vancouver, actually, I was the, uh, I've always been the only black person in the kitchen as well. Now, the way that this is kind of manifested is there's a sort of scrutiny. So when you first get a job, of course, the chef or sous chef, whoever's in charge of you, is going to watch your work to make sure that you are doing everything up to standard, you know, the way they want things done at that particular restaurant or whatever it happens to be. And that's not unusual. But what is unusual is that I just, I just, one thing that's I've discovered is that for me, a lot of times the scrutiny never ends. So mm -hmm. I can be working at a place for six months and the chef long time ago has said, okay, this is great. This is great. Other people have said it was great, but the, this sort of, high stakes it always feels like it's high stakes i guess and um it's just this extra scrutiny that never really ends and there's been a number of places i've worked like that where no matter how long i've been there there's still someone checking all the time that's part that's one thing and mm -hmm. the other part which is super is actually almost more annoying is that you're held to a higher standard mm -hmm. and it can be anything it's like okay i'm on this station and everyone else who's ever on this station can do things this way but when i get on that station it's like oh you can't do that you can't do that you can't do that you have to do it this way which often is the hardest way yeah. it's like how are you letting everyone else do this an easier way and i have to do it like this and it's like is it because i'm a woman i don't know is it because i'm black could be that too. Who knows, mm -hmm. right? 
it's like let's just you know eat play play flip a coin it's a 50 50 either way so yeah extra scrutiny held to a higher standard and um yeah i think those are probably the two things that have happened the most that have driven me absolutely absolutely crazy in working yeah okay man yeah, yeah that's that's interesting go ahead kylie were you gonna say something I just am thinking about all the things like you kind of said, it's like, is it a, if words, so sorry, is it because I'm a woman or is it because I'm black or is it because I'm both? And I was, I had the thought as well, like most chefs that I've seen or have been around wide, but it is kind of like a male dominant profession. And so I did have some thoughts of that. Like, have you felt, I guess, to kind of switch the conversation just a tiny bit. Um, have you had experiences where someone has said, something like a microaggression or just this kind of who has i'm like oh my goodness how do i phrase this have you had experiences where someone has attacked you for your skill through a microaggression or just actions and comments and things like that um that you have felt just like blatantly like this is off uh i'd have to say no i'd have to say on the whole canadians are pretty not blatant <laughs> that's good um I think things are, I think there's sort of this cover of politeness on a lot of things and people can be super racist perhaps, but you may never know it. It's only when these sort of little things might sneak out like the added scrutiny and all that sort of thing that that's not, no one else, no one else is, is, is being subjected to this, but I'm being subjected to this at all times. And I mean, I think the craziest part about it is that you get two things happening simultaneously. So there's a bit of a stereotypical, oh, you're black, so you must know how to cook. So there's mm. that, which has actually been said to me. But at the same time, those same people won't believe that you can cook at a certain level. Mm. So people would ask me, hey, where do you cook? And I would name you know, one of the best restaurants in Vancouver and the surprise you know it's like where do you think I was cooking Denny's like if I said Denny's no one would be surprised yeah right but because I'm saying fine dining you know it's it's acclaimed it's award-winning all of these sorts of things and suddenly there's a surprise and I I, I get so angry at that yeah. <laughs> and I know that if I were a white man people would they might be surprised but not consistently surprised yeah they and would, literally yeah. everyone who's ever asked it's like oh my god it's like wow. yes I, I have done this <laughs> interesting so, so it's like oh, go ahead sorry i'm just saying the surprise is different kind of what you're saying about like if it was a white man like the surprise is more oh my goodness how exciting for you whereas as a black woman it's like oh really like you're you're capable of being on top and succeeding in something mm -hmm. yeah exactly it's uh it's just a surprise that i can cook at a certain level and yeah yeah <laughs> it's also so interesting the duality there because you said there's the stereotype like oh you're black so you must be able to cook but you're black so you can't cook at a high level like like that that's so just so interesting to me um you know and you know i, I understand the stereotype of being black and being able to cook because you know black people uh, we have cuisine all over the world um you know, all kinds of different things. And a lot of the foods that people tend to eat uh, have origins in, in African cuisine. And then, you know, you have soul food, which I don't know. I don't know what soul food looks like in Canada. 
probably a little similar, but you know, it's just interesting to hear that that duality of oh you can cook but you can't cook you know like like i guess like white people can cook i don't know what the, what the what the thought process is there but that's interesting to me yeah i'm not i'm not too sure where that comes from either um it kind of comes up a bit to where well not everywhere i've worked but this one particular restaurant i worked at um i could never have any ideas that were my own ideas so here's how it works mm. Um, we would have a featured re a feature on the menu and a uh, chef would ask, Hey, does anyone have any ideas? And whenever I gave them an idea, it was never implemented until mm -hmm. I realized that the reason it wasn't implemented was because it was my idea. Mm -hmm. So I kind of played him against himself once I figured this out. And I would always say, Hey chef, I saw this thing on the food network or Hey chef, when I was traveling in Thailand, I saw this thing. Or, hey, chef, you know, there's this great recipe that uh, Gordon Ramsay had in his last book or something like this. And then my meal would get on the menu. Mm. My goodness. So, you know, Gordon Ramsay got a lot of credit <laughs> when I worked <laughs> at that restaurant <laughs> for my Holy ideas. God. Because literally zero times when it was my own idea would it get put on the menu. But as soon as I mentioned it, I saw it somewhere else or it was someone else's dish. Then... Yeah, then like nine times out of ten, it would get put on the menu. So, yeah, wow, it's just really tiring. Honestly, no, I'm sure to that's play this game, but but to know at the same time that someone is so bigoted that you can play him over and over again with the same thing mm -hmm. just by saying mm -hmm. it's someone else's idea, and suddenly it's awesome. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure. Go ahead. I was just saying it's frustrating. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's that's got to be very exhausting. So kudos to you for for doing your thing for 15 years, you know, in a in a very uh, male dominated, white European dominated industry. Um, you know, you you've been there for a while now, and it sounds like you've cooked at some of the best places that Canada and also the world has to offer. Um, so what are your goals moving forward? I'm sure you probably have another 15 years in you, right? So so what are your goals for 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 culinary arts moving forward i know you said you you're wanting to mentor some kids and, and do things like that but what you know what are your goals yeah i right now i actually have what i consider to be honestly the best job ever um i teach three days a week at a high school uh 16 to 18 year olds and my oh. job is to teach uh food literacy a little bit of gardening and some culinary skills so we have this lovely program uh, it's called lunch lab if anyone wants to look it up and I cook with some students in the kitchen and we cook for them and for their peers. Mm -hmm. uh, I work at a pretty small school, so it ends up being cooking for about, uh, let's say, about three to five kids in the kitchen. And then uh, as soon as we're done, it's lunchtime. And we have about 40 or so students that we cook for. And honestly, so much fun. <laughs> so much I'm fun. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that every, sounds like, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say every semester, you just never know who's going to be in your classroom. You never know what challenges or what, you know, what delights are waiting uh, mm -hmm. as far as students go. Like teenagers are very unpredictable and I kind of like that. So um, I'm sure. Yeah. I love working with kids and teenagers. So that sounds like a very fun job teaching a bunch of rowdy teenagers how to cook. Cause I remember my time in high school and high school students are funny. So I'm sure you probably have some good experiences there. So is, is that the goal moving forward just to keep teaching and keep mentoring students? I, yes, I actually do want to keep doing this. Like 
one of the reasons I want to do it, it sounds so strange, but I don't actually want them to become professional cooks. <laughs> okay. My, <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> it's physically demanding. Some workplaces could be super toxic. And um, it's hard on your body. You know, your knees start to give out, <laughs> all mm -hmm. kinds of things mm -hmm. like that. But what I, what really worries me is that do they have the skills to live? <laughs> do they have yeah. these sort of skills? So when they're on their own, if they go to school or if they move out, whatever, can they feed themselves? Do they know how to peel a carrot? I've had 16 year olds who have not known how to peel carrots. Mm. Um, I've had, I actually had one student, I said, oh, we'll put pasta in when the water's boiling. And she says, how do I know when the water's boiling? And those are important questions. You can't assume anything at this. And well, you peel I a carrot just like a banana, right? It's the same? Right. You just, yes. just pull yeah. it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just turn the top and yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. But uh, I like the idea of being able to pass along the skill that you know, some kids more excited than others, but I still like feeling, uh, feeling. <laughs> I like passing along the skill that is going to be useful at some point. You mm -hmm. know, if it's, I've always said, if anything I teach them means that they eat like one less meal of instant ramen, my job is done. <laughs> uh, we That's huge. used to, my mom took home ec in high school and it just taught like a ton of basic cooking skills and cleaning and how to do laundry and like just you know how to be an adult and so I love that that's your goal because I feel like so many of us miss out on that because parents are working or for whatever reason our parents just cook for us and so we're not forced to learn that until we leave home and it can be challenging so I love that that's the goal yeah and I think it's one less thing to make you know makes things a little bit easier if uh they have a few skills even if they only know how to cook one thing you know that's much better and I think the, the plan for this, too, is we do want to expand this to more schools. Um, Canada is the only G7 country that does not have a, a national lunch program. So hmm. even in this province, there is a mishmash of various agencies, depending on what school board you're in, what is available for lunch, what's not available for lunch. And wow. food security has always been something that's been super close to my heart. You know, I've had hmm. times when I've been hungry and I... It just means so much to me to be able to, just to even to be able to provide this service. And I consider it a service that I'm, that I'm providing. Like the kids are like, oh, you know, this is your job. But I, I feel more like, honestly, it's, ah, how can I say this? I feel really honored, honestly, to be in this position um, that something I love so much can be so helpful to someone else. And that this is going to stick for some kids. You know, I get the nicest letters at the end of semester from mm. kids that have had such a great time uh, in the class. And they're like, oh, I really loved your pancake recipe or grilled cheese, <laughs> you know, whatever <laughs> it happens to be. And you have, even for students who don't talk a lot, you get suddenly get this, all of this good feedback. And you're like, I had no idea that I had that kind of influence. Mm. But I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. And I love passing it on as well. I think that's so great. I love it. Well, Nate and I kind of have that same interest. And so I just think it's, it honestly, it warms my heart to have someone so influential for these kids. Like, I think it's amazing. Yeah, that is super important. Um, you know, a lot of kids, a lot of places need 
need people like you. So Chef Tasha, thank you so much for, for the work that you're doing, the work that you have done for being a pioneer in your industry. You are a, a special lady and we appreciate you coming on the podcast. So thank you so much for your interview. Thanks for having me. This has been quite enjoyable. Uh, we've had a we've had a good time learning a little bit about uh, about Canada, about racism and sexism in the culinary industry and about foraging. That's fascinating to me. That's something that I used to think I was a bit of a forager, but I was always too scared to eat whatever I found. So <laughs> only 100 percent, only if you're 100 <laughs> percent. There you go. That's smart. That's smart. Yeah. Well, uh, with that, we'll go ahead and uh, jump into our recommendations. So uh, who wants to go first? I can be me. It can be Kylie. Chef Tasha, if you're ready, you can go. If not, I'll just jump right into it. I just want to give everybody the chance. I say you jump right into it. All right, cool. Uh, so, oh, hold on. All right, so my recommendation for this week is just to find yourself a good educational podcast um, and listen to it. You know, I have several podcasts that I, I tap into on the regular. Some of them are educational. Some of them are more comedic um, just to kind of, you know, give me like a lighthearted way to just enjoy my, my commute home or what have you. But podcasting is it's a great way to learn and to educate yourself. I think I've shared this story a bunch of times before, but um, back last year during Pride Month, I realized I knew nothing about Pride. I knew nothing about um, the experiences of queer people, really, um, in regards to Pride Month, why it started, how it started, any of that. And so I was like, well, that's not acceptable. And so I just went ahead and looked up uh, a podcast. I think I typed in history of pride month on spotify and then like you know it listed like eight ten different podcasts and so i just clicked on the first one started listening and i was able to educate myself about something that i didn't know about before and i've done the same thing with other with other things i did a podcast about asexual people because i didn't know anything about that i've done podcasts about um, different history about geography um, about you know the, the the hollywood industry like acting um, so you know I've, I've been able to learn a lot just from different educational podcasts so I recommend just going on, you know, finding a topic that you want to learn more about and then just going and finding a podcast about it, even if it's just an episode. That's my recommendation for the week. Uh, Kylie, what you got? Yeah. Um, one thing I just was sitting with right now was just going on a walk. That's what I'm going to do after this. So my recommendation is just to go on the go on a walk while the weather is still nice, at least in Utah it is, um, as it's the summer's ending and just enjoy nature for a second and sit with your thoughts and your feelings and all of those great, amazing things, but just go get some fresh air. So that's my recommendation. <laughs> Love it. And last but not least, the Honorable Reverend Dr. Tasha Sawyer. Uh, my suggestion is actually hand in hand with Kylie's suggestion. While you're out on your walk, look at some uh, wild edibles. See if there's something out there that you could eat. Go online. Mm. Uh, there's many, many, many uh, Instagram uh, accounts that have wild foraging on them. One of my favorites is called the Black Forager, um, Alexis hmm. Nicole. And uh, her tagline, which I will use right now, is happy snacking, don't die. I'm crying. I love that. <laughs> I'm about to look that up right now. We'll add that to the show notes. The Black Forager, Alexis Nicole. Cool. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Thank you for coming on. And I'm glad to be here too with everyone. Um, I learned some new things. I'm going to go look for some wild mushrooms. So, <laughs> yeah. Shout out to our amazing but, guests. Know, mushrooms are actually one of the highest, hardest things to identify. <laughs> oh, I believe it. Might mess around. It. So, we'll see. Maybe I'll start with some like fruit. Yes. There you go. 
Let's start with the safe stuff. Eat a, eat a bright red berry. See where that takes you. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, Chef Tasha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you. And uh, just a little bit of closing remarks here. Uh, we appreciate y'all listening to the podcast. If you ever have any stories that you want to share with us, um, please make sure to email us at blackmenacespodcast at gmail.com. And then also be sure to follow us on all platforms that you can see clips from the podcast, find out about other interviews that we're going to be having. You can follow us on Instagram at Black Menaces, at tic- on uh, TikTok at Black Menaces, and Twitter at Black Menaces. And then we're the Black Menaces on YouTube. We're working on building up our YouTube content right now. So be sure to check that out. And then uh, also, if you are willing to support in any way, please uh, feel free to go on our store, the blackmenaces.org slash merch, actually the blackmenaces.org slash store, where you can buy our merch. We have the OG t-shirts, hoodies, um, a bunch of back to school stuff. So if you got kids or, or, you know, nieces and nephews going back to school, buy them a be a menace water bottle, buy them a, a be a menace backpack. Um, and also you can donate to us, um, on Venmo at the black menaces. Um, yeah, with that, we appreciate y'all. We love y'all and we will catch you next week. Peace out, everyone. Thank you.